Every haunted place has a story with a dark past. This is Ghost Encounters Podcast. Due to the graphic and violent things discussed on this episode, listener discretion is advised. Welcome back, all you spooky people, to the 14th episode of the second season of Ghost Encounters Podcast. I am paranormal investigator Justin Torok. And I'm Jordan, the group scientist. We have a special guest today. It is Jordan's sister, Paige Balterson. <laughs> Thank you for coming back on the podcast. Thanks for having me. We have a very interesting episode to share with you. It's not necessarily ghosts. It's not necessarily paranormal, but it is something a bit spooky and creepy and does have to deal with death. This is a reincarnation podcast episode. I don't know about you ladies, but I have some pretty wild stories to share. Yeah, they're pretty weird. (laughs) Unexplainably weird. A lot of stories we have talked about have had coincidences, but this is just, this is top tier with coincidences. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Paige and Jordan, do you believe in reincarnation? I mean, it's hard not to. After reading these stories, I always wanted it to be real, yeah. if that makes sense. Like, I, we obviously don't know if it is, but after reading stories like this, I'm just like, fuck yeah, I want to come back. <laughs> I want to, you know, be with the, my same family and everything like that. Like, that would be cool. Yeah, that's yeah. how I feel, too. I think, I believe in reincarnation. I think it's really cool. And I've always said I wanted to come back in the ocean or something. All right, All right. so if you had to come back... Would you come back as another person, or what other animal or creature would you come back as? After this lifetime, I don't want to be a person. <laughs> I want to come back as something else. What? And I want to be a tinafore. What is a tinafore? It's a comb jelly. They live in the depths of the ocean in the dark abyss, oh and they bioluminescence, and it's cool, and <laughs> look it up. Of course. The scientist and swimmer wants to be that. That's yeah. what I want to be. Jellyfish scare the hell out of me. So I, I know. know. You're <laughs> scared of the jellyfish. Paige, what would you come back as? I um, I always said I would want to be like a dolphin or a shark. Of course you would. You love dolphins uh, and yes. sharks. <laughs> but I feel like you'd have to be like a pelagic shark, like out there in the middle of the ocean, not like close to shore or anything no. like that. No, yeah. Anything, anything in the ocean. I love the ocean. My so. mom always says she wants to come back as a cat so she can be lazy. <laughs> <laughs> I just get pet all day. That's such a good idea. Candy would. Here I am. I was like, I want to be in the depths of the ocean in the dark alone. <laughs> like, <laughs> Justin's mom. I, I just want to be a cat. cat. <laughs> Me, personally, these stories are way too out there and coincidental for them not to be true. I would say I believe in reincarnation to an extent. I don't think it happens with every single soul and every single being, but I think with some, it does happen. And I know that there's a lot of religious beliefs, like Buddhism, and Mm -hmm. like I think it's even Hinduism and stuff like that. And especially in Asia, they believe in a certain like amount of lives that you live. Like I think in like Korea, it's four lives you live, and you you can get to like go under like hypnosis and get to experience your past life and everything. That's They're like really re- that's like really cool. Yeah, they like are really accepting of it, so that's interesting. Yeah, there are a lot of religions that actually have reincarnation in their beliefs and in their teachings, which is which is pretty cool. <clears throat> you didn't tell us what you wanted to be reincarnated into, because you, you half believe it. You don't want to tell us. What do you want to be? An ant. No, I'm fucking squished. I was like, I was thinking the same thing. I was like, you know, my life sucks now, so maybe if I turn into a gnat, somebody will just be like, smack, and then I'll just go. I feel the like next Justin's life. soul is like so pure that he has to come back as like a, 
like what elephants are. Like you just have to yeah, like, like, use a pure soul. You can have a like, pure soul. Yeah. Oh. I feel like I feel like Justin could be a little sly fox too, like a little trickster. True, true. A he does have fox. that personality yeah. too. I I don't know. I want to be something that would yeah, you're right. Something that can trick someone yeah, or mess like it with has people. To be like mm-hmm. a little like a like little, a jokester. Like, like yeah, because yeah. he jokes all the time. Like my twin sister always says that she wants to be a panda because all she wants to oh do is God. eat bamboo all day and be a fucking mess. Because if you watch videos of pandas, they like literally give zero fucks about their well being. Yeah. So, and they like, have no natural predators, so it would be great to come back as a panda. I, right? I'll, I'll know you do that is one. Eat bamboo. Yeah. I I honestly don't know what I would want to come back as. I can't believe it's you a, haven't thought about it. I know. I, when I, I was when it. I was younger, I probably said monkey because I loved monkeys and they're just fun and fun. <laughs> they and are crazy. Can I actually and, see that? You know, they come, they live together and they're always together with their families and stuff, swinging from <laughs> Sorry, branches. Like, I'm laughing because <laughs> I'm laughing because I was just listening to our, our um, like past podcasts today just for fun, and Kayla and your podcast before I was even on the podcast talked about monkeys and she literally says that you know when they get pissed they throw shit so I'm like thinking about Justin getting pissed and throwing shit oh my fucking god to be able to do that oh yeah it'd be acceptable it's acceptable monkey behavior now all these stories we have, obviously, it's nothing about going into being an animal or anything, because we wouldn't be able to know. We can't talk to animals. But this, these stories are all about humans coming back as another human and remembering their past lives. The concept of reincarnation is both fascinating and terrifying. It is said that when we die, our souls are reborn into a new body. Some believe that memories of our past lives are buried deep within us, waiting to be uncovered. But what if those memories are not just a distant echo? but a haunting reality. What if you could remember the exact moment you died, the pain and fear of your last breath and the faces of those who watched you perish? What if you were plagued by the memories of all your past lives, each one overlapping the other until you could no longer distinguish present and past? The thought of living in a perpetual state of deja vu and never fully being able to escape the memories of your past lives is enough to make anyone question the very nature of existence. My first story is about a little boy named James Lenninger. I've heard about this story a very long time ago, and I was fascinated. At just two years old, James Lenninger started having terrifying nightmares of a plane crash. But it gets even creepier. He claimed to be an American pilot who was shot down by the Japanese. James gave shocking details about the crash, including the name of an American aircraft carrier and even the first and last name of a friend who was with him on the ship. He went on to reveal the location of other specifics about the fatal crash. His parents were left dumbfounded when they discovered that their son's statements matched the death of a World War II pilot named James Houston from Pennsylvania. It is enough to make you wonder, was James really a reincarnation of James Houston? It's crazy that they named him James too. And that gets creepier because the boy signs his pictures with a specific title. But we'll get into that. Okay, I can't wait. James was born on April 10, 1998, but his extraordinary story began to unfold when he was just 22 months old in February of 2000. His father took him to the Cavanaugh Flight Museum outside of Dallas, and James was immediately drawn into the planes, especially those of the World War II exhibit. James and his father embarked on a second trip to the museum on Memorial Day weekend that same spring. James was once again thrilled to be there, but grew silent when they reached the hangar outside the World War II aircraft. He stood in amazement and gazed at the planes in awe. Within just two months of their first visit, James developed an unusual habit. 
He would repeatedly say airplane, crash, on fire, before slamming his toys into the family's coffee table. It was around this time that James began experiencing nightmares. Initially, he would only scream during them, but soon started uttering the words too, such as airplane, crash, on fire, little man, can't get out. James would repeatedly scream the same phrase while wildly thrashing about and kicking his legs in the air. After a few months of this, he began having conversations with his parents about these disturbing dreams, often just before going to sleep. He told them that they were actually memories from his past, and that he had been on a plane that had crashed and caught fire shot down by the Japanese. He's actually telling his parents that these are memories that he had. That's crazy. That's, that's, that's crazy, because he's so young. Yeah. Two weeks later, James surprised his parents by saying that he had been flying a crosshair, a specific fighter plane developed during World War II, and he talked about flying a crosshair multiple times. So he's not only that, he's now he's describing the plane, the type of plane that he flew in this past life. That's one of the planes they developed during the war. That's crazy. Then on August 27, 2000, when James was just 28 months old, he revealed to his parents that he had flown his plane off a boat. When his parents asked for the boat's name, he replied, Natoma. James's father was intrigued by the name and began searching online for information about it. Eventually, he discovered a detailed description of the USS Natoma Bay, an escort carrier that had been stationed in the Pacific during World War II. And how would a kid know that? I would have exactly. like chills all over my body. You know what I mean? Like, how does how? he know these That's stories? Like insane. his father had to look it up himself. Like, yeah. how, is, how does this little kid just know this? James's parents tried to gather more information about the little man in his dreams and asked him several times for his name. However, James always replied with either me or James. After a few weeks of James mentioning the USS Natoma Bay, his parents asked him if he could remember anyone else who was with them. And to their surprise, James responded with the name Jack Larson. The fuck? That's crazy. I know. When James was about two and a half years old, his father was browsing through a book titled The Battle of Iwo Jima, 1945, which he planned to give to his father as a Christmas present. James pointed out to an aerial photo of the island's base where uh, Mount Serbachi, a dormant volcano, is located and said, that's where my plane was shot down. His father was taken back and asked him what he meant, to which James replied, my airplane got shot down there, daddy. About a week later, James's father contacted a veteran from Natoma Bay who remembered a pilot named Jack Larson, the friend that this little boy was referring to. I can't so he's, po- he's, he's looking at an aerial picture of this for the first time and pointing, that's where my plane got shot down, Daddy. Uh, like, how would you react as a I'd father? I'd be like, little like, kid, uh, you're going to the adoption agency. Oh, my God. <laughs> Stop. Oh my God. That would freak kids freak me out. Like, imagine your kid is looking at you and just being like, yeah, you're a Jima, blah, 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 blah. Like, you know, like, I would be like... like no kid should know about yeah, World like, War II. How do you that. even know how... How do you even know anything about World War II right. at and two And the skeptic's going to be like, oh, well, his dad took him to the museum and looked at the stuff. Just by looking at a museum once or twice doesn't mean you're going to know all these details. Yeah, yeah. and that, how would you, you know? retain that kind of information as a two-year-old? Yeah. Right. And be able to look at your dad. Wait a minute, he was like, even yeah, younger than that like, when he was yeah. at the freaking museum. And how do you know the, how a plane is made? Like, how do you know about engines right. and, and types? Like, and you're, you're just learning your name, everyone else's names, and now you're learning the name of the, the boat you were, you were on, the name of your uh, plane, the name of your friend. Like, it's insane. And how he knew, like, how the airplane got shot down yeah like how does he know the term like shot down. shot down i don't that's weird yeah due kids, to james's kids are scary yeah they are <laughs> <laughs> due to james's reoccurring nightmares his parents eventually reached out to carol bowman the author of a book on children's past life memories and they began corresponding 
Paige has given me like a look or a finger. Does she come up in one of your stories? She does. She does. She's actually the one I looked at for my reincarnation wow, story see? too as well. Okay. Following Bowman's advice, James's mother acknowledged to him that these events he was describing had indeed happened to him before, but emphasized that they were in his past and he was now safe. As a result, the nightmares became less intense and less frequent. According to James's parents, as he grew older and learned to draw, he became fixated on drawing battle scenes featuring airplanes, of course. He signed these drawings as James III. When his parents asked him about the number three, James explained that it referred to him being the third James, rather than his age. This may have been because his father was also named James. James continued to sign his drawings this way even after he turned four years old. In 2002, James's parents were interviewed by ABC News for a segment on a program called Strange Mysteries. However, the segment was ultimately not aired. So I wonder if it was too much for ABC <laughs> to air this. Yeah, um, probably. But it's weird that he's referring to himself as James Three. That's actually pretty right? cool. Pretty like, smart. Too. So he's thinking, okay, I was James then. My father is James, and now I'm James. Okay, so three James. So I'm James Three. Oh, see me. That's I smart. took it that he was the third James in like, the could, regiment. Or it could like, be that know? in the regiment. Maybe, maybe there was a James even before the previous James. Yeah. And he keeps coming back as James. That's freaking weird. Right. Right. After a few months, James's father attended the Notoma Bay reunion. There, he discovered that Jack Larson had survived the war and soon visited him. He also learned that during the Battle of Iwo Jima, only one pilot from that ship was lost. James M. Houston Jr. He found that Houston had not died on Iwo Jima itself, but during a strike against transport vessels in a harbor on nearby Chichijima. His plane crashed exactly as little James had described, with the engine being hit and the plane exploding into flames, crashing into the water and quickly sinking. The pilot of the plane next to Houston's was named Jack Larson. What the frick? Now I'm gonna show you oh, girls, no. I'm gonna get your reaction on oh, audio. Shit. This is the picture that little James drew. You can see that he signed it, James three. Oh shit. And you can see that the front of the plane is hit and exploding. Oh, what the Oh heck? my God, that's so creepy. That is crazy. They are from Louisiana. This pilot is from Pennsylvania. How would, How would they know? Yeah, I have the chills. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's crazy, that's wild. Yeah. Of all things, not the not the wing being hit, not the back of the plane. It's no, literally the engine. The front of the plane and the engine exploding into flames. Wow. That's insane. And just like when you pointed out, that's where my plane crashed. It, right. The same spot, too. Weird. The James Lenninger reincarnation story leaves us wondering about the mysteries of life and death and raises unsettling questions about the possibility of our souls returning into the world in different forms. It's a chilling reminder that the secrets of the universe are still beyond our grasp, and that the line between reality and the supernatural may be more blurred than we think. That was a crazy story. That was yeah. a good story. I remember the story when this happened back then. I feel like I was it's fascinated. One of, yeah, I feel like it's one of the most you, common you remember it reincarnation. Too, yeah. Yeah. There's more details. Like this little boy, like knew certain things about the inside of the cockpit and like how things worked. It just yeah. absolutely insane, especially at such a young age. Right. Yeah. It's insane. Yeah. It's literally insane. But imagine like being a little kid and like, not just, they're not just nightmares. You're you're having these these dreams of a past life right. of you dying in a plane crash. Yeah. Did he terrifying. grow out of it? Yes. Like okay, yeah, I know. So that, it eventually just stopped. Yeah, yeah. I know the, that the nightmares they say, eventually stopped, and he just knows that he had this past life. Yeah, like I know that um, it's common between the ages of like five to seven that they like 
forget that they even said the shit that they said or mm-hmm. whatever, and they mm-hmm. like go about their their life not realizing that they said some crazy shit. Yeah, he doesn't remember everything in detail. Like you know, he was so young, but he remembers little bits and pieces of yeah, kind of what happened here. Interesting. You know? Yeah. Well, with that creepy story, Jordan. Who did you look up for reincarnation? I, I looked up Dorothy Edie. I think her last name is pronounced Edie. Dorothy was born in 1904 in London, but it wasn't until she was three years old that um, her reincarnation story began. She started having these like weird fits and like remembrances after she fell down a flight of stairs and was knocked out unconscious, oh, like, shit. completely unconscious. Um, accounts after this can um, differ depending on the source that you hear it from, but um, she was either pronounced or assumed dead at the time, um, but then apparently, like, suddenly revived, and, like, That's the doctor came back to check in on her and the family, and she was sitting up playing in her bed. Uh, um, that, I, what? That's crazy. Yeah, so I would be freaking out. So after finding her very much alive, um, quickly after this incident, her parents started to notice she had formed a weird accent, um, which they assumed that she had suffered like from a brain injury because there actually is like um, like a diagnosis called foreign like accent syndrome. Okay. That people that have strokes and like brain injuries, they can like form these like weird accents that they obviously shouldn't have. Wow. So basically this little girl was never going to be the same after this fall. Um, and the accent was just the simplest of all the changes that we're about to talk about. She began to have reoccurring dreams of a life in a huge column building, like with these pillars and everything. And she insisted that she wanted to go home, apparently thinking that she lived in this column building. Understandably, her parents tried to explain that she was already home, um, but she insisted that she had another home, but she couldn't say exactly where the home was. That's cool because in my next story, after the break, my story involves this little boy about saying he wanted to go home too. Oh, Oh, interesting. That's cool. Cool. So everybody thought that this was just um, delusions from the accident mm-hmm. and a combination of her having a young mind, you know, kids will be kids kind yeah, of thing. Right. Sometime within the first year of her accident, Dorothy's parents brought her to an Egyptian exhibit at the British Museum. Upon entering the, the galleries and everything, she ran away from her parents and pointed to a photo and cried, there's my home. What? Yeah, that's pretty she crazy. Took off and- that, that she saw something and she was like, I know exactly what that is. The image was the temple of Seti I, who was the father of Ramses the Great. She insisted that she had once lived in that very same building, but then noticed something was missing. So here's her another quote. Where are the trees? Where are the gardens? She was only about four years old when she said this. So I thought that that was really crazy that she was looking at, like, you know, obviously a yeah. picture of something and being like, where's the trees? Yeah, it's, it's always, it's obvious, a young it's obviously a picture of obviously the pyramids after the time yeah. you know and back then they did have lush greenery and gardens and stuff oh, it's just yeah. like that age they like in they the wouldn't stories. have known that yeah, yeah it's just crazy so the story goes that dorothy ran into different sections of the exhibit and she would kiss the feet of statues and say that she was now quote unquote amongst her people what? her parents understandably were embarrassed and tried to get her to like chill out and everything like that they didn't understand why their daughter was acting that way. She also sat next to a preserved mummy and insisted that she be left there with her people, too. Like no child did. would ever say that. A oh, mummy. Like, yeah. Mummies aren't really all that enticing to look at. Like, no. Some of them are pretty creepy. Kids would probably yeah. be scared. Yeah. So later on, she caught the attention of an Egyptologist named E.A. Wallace Budge, who encouraged her to learn hieroglyphics, which she learned super fast for her age. I think it said somewhere that she was, like, six. 
and straight up learning. I could have Hier- learned hieroglyphics because she kind of claimed that she knew them, but she didn't remember them as well. So obviously, it mm. made sense if this if she did live this past life that she could learn right. it way quicker than yeah. the average six year old. It's crazy. As she learned more and more about Egypt, she began to have issues at home and in school. She was kicked out of Sunday school because of her tendency to compare Christianity to Egyptian paganism. The girls' school she attended expelled her after she stubbornly refused to sing a hymn that exhorts God to curse the swart Egyptians. Um, I don't... I, I guess if I had some strong-ass beliefs and I was expected to sing something, I'd right. be like, hell no. But, like, for the <laughs> time frame, it's kind of weird that she, like, was going, like, stubbornly against yeah. these people because it was so long ago. Like, you didn't do stuff like that back then. Exactly. The no. Especially as a girl. Yeah, you weren't really you know? as rebellious. But they're literally talking against... What she believed in. Her own people. Yeah. Yeah. She even had to drop out of Catholic Mass, which I thought was crazy. Which, by all accounts, um, she thoroughly enjoyed. She did not want to go back. Apparently, she made a comment that it reminded her of the old religion of the pharaohs. um, And an angry priest apparently came to her house and, like, bitched at her parents and was like, you know, she is not coming back. He told her that she was no longer welcome in his congregation. Um... And even after this, her obsession with ancient Egypt grew. At 14, she began to describe her relationship with Seti I. Oh. Oh, wow. Claiming to have been his lover in her previous life. She even described visions of nighttime visitations in which a mummy came to her bedside. Whoa. What? Dorothy's parents tried to get her help. Like, they, like, committed her to, like, sanatoriums or whatever. Well, back then, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously, even while she was there, who knows what kind of shit she was going through there. That it didn't help her. Like no. It didn't no. sway her opinion yeah. at all. She just simply refused to let go of her beliefs, and at 16, she finally dropped out of school for good. But her education did not completely end there. She took up part-time studies at an art school in Plymouth. She even got to play as Isis on a stage for a play, which I thought was nice. super cool. That's pretty cool. I'm sure she was living her best life. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, during this period, Dorothy worked out the details of her previous life, um, probably because she was maturing. So she was able to like put stuff yeah. together that mm-hmm. she wouldn't have been able to. I just think it's crazy that she's now 14 and still remembers her past life. Like we were just talking in the previous, at the end of your story. Right, it, like fades a bit. Yeah, but, mm-hmm. now we have her, she's about to live her whole life yeah. knowing. She told her parents again that um, she had these nighttime apparitions of a specific god named Hora which claimed to be the spirit of Seti I. And he apparently dictated to her over a year-long series of visitations, claiming to be the reincarnation of a girl named Ben Trashit. Dorothy described being um, abandoned at the age of three and then being raised by the people at the temple Mm. of Seti I, which was the very same building that she had pointed out as a four-year-old. So... Because she grew up and she was able to like research and study, mm-hmm. she was able to find exactly where and what she was, yeah. which I thought was super, super yeah. fascinating. She recounted meeting the pharaoh in the temple gardens while serving as a priestess of Isis. For a priestess of Isis to lose her virginity, though, was a capital offense. Oh, wow. After mm-hmm. becoming pregnant with Seti's child, she chose to die by her own hand. She committed suicide, protecting him from, like, shame and dishonor, basically, which is such a badass Mm. thing. Apparently, in other sources, she was, like, confronted about being pregnant, and they Uh basically said, like, you're gonna, we're gonna put you on trial, and we're gonna kill you, basically. And she just chose to to kill kill herself. Go out on her own terms. Yeah. And, you know, if you, like, really follow Egyptian stuff, they're really, like, spiritual people. So, obviously, killing 
killing yourself wasn't really that big of a deal, to be honest. You know, right. they thought that they would be able to find their way back to their lovers and everything like that. So when she was nearing the age of 30 years old, she met an Egyptian man, and they soon got married and moved to Cairo. Again, I bet you she was ecstatic about that. Well, yeah. <laughs> and then they had a son, which she named Seti, but without the I, it's S-E-T-Y. That's awesome. After her long-lost lover, and started to refer to herself as Am Seti, which means mother of Seti. Oh, my God. Oh that's my awesome. Oh, my gosh. That's cool. She's a bad bitch. <laughs> um, her marriage didn't last long, though. I believe it was only two years because she kept having these frequent out-of-body experiences and crazy ideas about Egypt that, like, the, the family didn't really like and they didn't want to be a part of. Like, her husband mm. was kind of like, this is ridiculous. Like, I right. don't want to be like, a part of Like, even for him anymore. as an Egyptian, yeah. like, he's like, this is too much. Yeah, and he straight up left her and the kid and moved to That's Iraq. That's awful. Or something. Oh, or wow. Iran. That's he, like, awful. straight up moved Not away. Bad. Yeah, he just didn't want to be around her. Fueled by passion for Egyptology, she became the first woman to work for the Department of Antiquities in Abydos. I think that's how you pronounce it. Dos, dos, don't know. During her time, she published numerous books and articles that were still widely admired. Like, people really enjoyed her story. They enjoyed yeah. learning about her. Could you imagine you have, like, an English woman that traveled to Egypt, which probably wasn't very popular at the time, right. and literally knew almost everything. Yeah. And it, it gets more fascinating as we go. People are were also a little frightened by her, especially the locals, since she was known to spend nights alone inside the Great Pyramids of Giza or lay offerings by the feet of the Sphinx. Wow. Oh, yeah. wow. So she, yeah. Yeah, she was like, I guess she just felt like she really belonged. And I mean, yeah. if you genuinely feel like you belong there, I don't and see so why that she, yeah. would be weird, you right. know? Um, these rituals shocked people and made her um, the subject of gossip. Of course. Which, duh. Um, but she was also super admired, like I said before, for being open about her beliefs and, and being really hell-bent on her beliefs. Like, she did not want to sway from them. Around the time that she was 50 years old, she was asked to work alongside excavators. It was at the Temple of Seti where people started to question their previous notions about Dorothy as they watched her stand before a plot of land as ordinary and as undistinguishable as the rest. So it probably looked like a freaking right. desert, just, just like everywhere. <laughs> yeah. And declared it like the central garden of this temple. Wow. So she saw something completely different in her mind than these other people mm -hmm. saw. So this location that she was obsessed with was the very place she had pointed out as a girl at the British Museum. Right, the same spot where she said, where are the gardens? Yep, yeah. yep. Wow. So hours of excavation revealed a garden <laughs> where Dorothy said it would be. Wow. Even more baffling was the exchange she had with a chief inspector from Egypt's antiquities department who took her to Seti's temple and tested her claims. I love this part. Standing there in total darkness, he described a series of wall paintings to her. After each description, he would ask her to walk in the direction of the particular mural. She did so without hesitation. In the fucking dark. Like Silence of the Lambs type shit. Just you know like what, doing her own thing. You know what this reminds me of? What? It reminds me of Anoxuna Moon. Yeah. In, <laughs> in the second mummy, the mummy returns when her reincarnated person like knows exactly where he is, knows exactly where the books are, she knows everything about him. Like Maybe they took this story <laughs> and they like they yeah. wanted to like use it. And obviously the inspector was completely astonished. Like he couldn't believe that yeah. she could do this. She was like a map uncovering the path of hidden treasure. Dorothy led the team to a tunnel in the North Temple, which had gone unnoticed for decades. What was even more jaw-dropping was her ability to perfectly describe images that have never been disclosed to the public. 
She was adamant that her discoveries were based on memories and not research or intuition. Mm. At her death at 77 years old, she was still trying to find more hidden mysteries in Egypt, and people are still trying to prove her wrong to this day, and they can't. They they're can't understand gonna, why. They're not going they're to. Not gonna. Yeah. They can't understand why she did it. Yeah, I think she said that there was something amazing under the temple, like hidden caverns or something like that, some tomb, something crazy, and they still haven't found it because she passed away. Yeah, they should have listened to her. Yeah, yep. and she was even in like Times Magazine and everything. You can look up um, a bunch of interviews with her where she literally lived her entire life thinking that she was from ancient Egypt, and I think that is amazing. That that's, is an awesome story. That's a great story. Yeah, I really like that. that and really I, cool. I added it because we like The Mummy. Yeah, we do. We're a little obsessed with that movie. (laughs) Well, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, don't worry, we'll be ourselves. We're going to tell you more reincarnation stories. The Spooky Shop is now open for Ghost Encounters merch. Visit ghost-encounters.com and click on Spooky Shop. This episode is brought to you by The Colony Meadery. If you haven't tried mead yet, it's alcohol made from honey, and it's the fastest growing alcoholic beverage in the United States. It's all natural, totally gluten-free, and delicious. And one of the best meaderies in the world is right here in the Lehigh Valley. Stop in and try a flight of meads, grab some bottles or cans to go, and experience some of the best booze in the world. They've got flavors ranging from tart and quaffable lemon laws and Wu-Tang Cran, to cinnamon vanilla series of tubes and even the sweet heat of their mango habanero. Learn more at either location or at colonymeadery.com. Ghost Encounters podcast and show is sponsored by Phoenix Fire Media. Bring the heat to your online presence with their expert social media marketing, photography, and video productions. Visit phoenixfiremedia.com. If all you spooky people are enjoying the Ghost Encounters podcast, hit subscribe and give us five stars. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at Ghost Encounters PA. To watch full episodes of the Ghost Encounters show, Visit ghost-encounters.com. And we are back, like I said, as ourselves. And the next reincarnation story is going to come from Paige. Paige, what story did you look up? Um, the story I looked up is about Shanti Debbie. And I know most people hear of many, many cases of reincarnation these days. Um, but... It's, uh, it was uncommon in the early 30s. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, it inform- yeah, information about this is, like, great news to people. Yeah, so. now, now people can openly actually talk about it. Back then, like, you couldn't, like, you couldn't really talk about that. People just think you're crazy. Yeah. You know? <laughs> you know? And it goes completely against probably most people's religions, religions back then. Yeah, yeah you know exactly. What I mean? So this is a story about a little girl who was born in India, who was first known by the local people, and then news eventually spread all across the world about her. Wow. And her name is Shanti Devi, and the story is perhaps one of the most famous reincarnation cases on record. I it is wait. one of the coolest. It is. It's. Uh, I told Justin earlier about this. Like I remember hearing about her, but I don't remember where about her story. You read her in a book. I probably, I read a lot of books, so I probably did you read, read way her. read too many books. <laughs> I probably read about her case. So, or um, maybe... You knew about it in a past life. Oh. oh. <laughs> <laughs> the way the two of you are. Oh. oh. <laughs> <laughs> and we were supposed to get it together the second half. Okay. Three, <laughs> You're two, fine. One. I fucking love you girls. <laughs> <laughs> we never true. 
So on January 18th, 1902, a resident of Matura, sorry if I pronounce this wrong, um, was blessed with a daughter who is named Lugdi. She married Kedarnath Chube, a shopkeeper from the same locality. He owned a cloth shop in Matura and also a branch shop. It was the second marriage for him as his earlier wife died. Okay. Lugdi was very religious and had been to several pilgrimage places at a very young age. While at one, specifically, she was injured in, in her leg, which she had to be treated. So when she became pregnant for the first time, her child was unfortunately a stillborn oh, no. uh, following a C-section. That's terrible. Yeah, it's, it was sad. For uh, her second pregnancy, though, her husband went to a government hospital where a son was born. Again, through a C-section on September 25th, 1925. Nine days later, however, on October 4th, Lugdi's condition declined and she died. That's terrible. Yeah, so it's it's, it's a sad well, story. For it's very sad. Because, you know, childbirth, it still was, to this day, you is, can die. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's yeah. a very, very traumatic thing it a really person is, has yeah. to go through. So now here is where the story actually takes a turn. This is where Shanti Debbie actually comes into play. So one year, 10 months, and seven days after Lugdi's death on December 11th, 1926, Shanti Devi was born. She was just like any other girl, except that until the age of four, she did not speak much. But then she started talking, and it was a whole different girl completely. And she started talking to her parents about her husband and her children. But she's four. She's four years old. So it, it like, throws you off a bit, like... How are you... That's so weird. Yeah. How do you have a husband and children in year four? So she told her parents that her husband was in Matra, where he owned a cloth shop and they had a son. Oh, shit. So she told... Yeah, she told her parents, the same town... Yeah. ...that Lugdi's husband was in. And he, in fact, owned a, clo- a clothing shop and had a son. So the parents considered it just like a child's fantasy and literally overlooked it. Of course. As any parent would yeah. at that age. They began to worry when she talked about it repeatedly, though. Um, and over time, she began to tell them a number of incidents connected with her life in town with her husband. On occasions at meals, she would say, I'm in my house in Matra. I ate different kinds of sweets. Sometimes when her mother dressed her, she would tell what types of dresses she used to wear. She even mentioned three distinctive features about her husband. He was fair had a big wart on his left cheek and wore reading glasses. How would she know So she's describing her husband. Yeah, in detail. Yes. She also mentioned where her husband's shop was located. Now, Shanti Devi was only six years old at the time, and her parents were very, very worried. Shanti even detailed an account of her death following childbirth. Oh, wow. So her parents took her to a family physician who... But they were amazed how a little girl knew so many details of the complicated surgical procedures. Right. But the mystery continued to the point where the parents were actually believing these memories were from a past life. Well, yeah, now, yeah. Yeah, Good, so, now you're yeah, it, now right? they believe it. As she grew older, she kept asking her parents to be taken to Matra. She, however, never mentioned her husband's name up to the age of eight or nine. Now, in India, I guess it's customary to, the wives do not, they're not, expected to utter their husband's names to anyone. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, neither did I, so that was a fascinating thing to learn about. Um, even when specifically asked, she she would blush and say that she would recognize him. Even taken there, but not his... He, she would never say his name. Mm-hmm. 
So one day, a distant relation, who was a teacher in a high school, apparently told Shanti that if she told him her husband's name, he would take her to Madra. Lured by this offer, she whispered in his ear the name of Lugdi's husband. Mm -hmm. He then told her that he would arrange for the trip. He wrote a letter to Lugdi's husband detailing all the statements made by Shanti Devi and asked him to visit. Ketarnath replied, confirming most of her statements and suggested that one of his relatives were allowed to meet Shanti. So it wasn't... So he necessarily didn't want to meet Shanti. Mm -hmm. He wanted one of his relatives to. So keep that right. in mind. Yeah, I know so, when they said that he was like so heartbroken that he didn't yeah, want to like go he, and see her. Yeah. He just, so they were, were going to send a relative. Yeah. yeah. So Kenanath's cousin and Shanti met, and he was so impressed by her that he actually went back to Kenanath and tried to persuade him to meet her. Right. So on November 12th, 1935, he took Lugdi's son and himself to finally meet Shanti. When they arrived, the cousin introduced them, but he tried to mislead Shanti at this point. He tried to tell her that Ketarnath was his older brother. So Shanti started blushing, and someone in the room eventually asked why she was blushing at her husband's older brother. And her response was, no, he is not my husband's brother. He is my husband himself. Wow. To which she turned to her mother and said, didn't I tell you that he is fair and he has a wart on the left side of his cheek near his ear? Wow, yeah. It's, it's actually so astonishing. <laughs> so then she asked to have meals prepped, you know, for the family. They came all this way. Yeah. Um, and she named all of his favorite dishes. And he was absolutely shocked about this information. He still couldn't believe it. Right. So, I mean, who would? Yeah, exactly. Right? If you're sitting down, you're talking to this little girl. Who's, like yeah, your, who's like, supposedly the reincarnation of, of his your wife. wife. Yeah. So um, Shanti then um, became overwhelmed by seeing Ketarnath's son. That she actually started crying when she hugged him. Of course. Uh, Shanti explained that her son was a part of her soul. And that that soul is able to easily recognize this fact. Mm. Shanti spent several days with Ketarnath and his son before they had to return to Matra. So, saddened by their departure, she pleaded and begged her parents to take a trip to her former home. Like, she did not... She wanted to go so badly. Mm -hmm. She promised that she could lead them directly to her old house and explain that she had a box of money buried there. Wow. So... The parents were probably like, what? I'll be like, say less, we're on our way. We gotta get that money. <laughs> money. <laughs> In November of 1935, dozens of researchers who actually heard about this joined Debbie because the parents convinced, like, the parents gave in. Mm -hmm. So they took this three hour train ride to Mathra. While exploring the house with Ketarnath, one of the researchers then asked where the buried treasure might be mm -hmm. like where like she mentioned like where is this box of money that you that you told us so debbie took off she apparently ran upstairs and headed straight to a corner of a like a random room declaring that the box was hidden beneath the floorboard ketanoth opened the flooring and indeed found a small coffer but it was empty <gasps> somebody oh. stole her money so well later like it explains that Kenneth actually admitted to her that he'd taken the cash after <gasps> Lucky's death. Wow, so it was there. So it was there with money in it. So Debbie's tour of the town continued to her former parents' house, a.k.a. Lucky's parents. 
she not only recognized them, but she identified them out of 50 people. Wow. Oh my gosh. I heard that when she came back to like town, quote unquote, that uh, people were like waiting to see this because they heard there the were story so, all over it, India. It, it was all over the world it was, at this yeah, point. Yeah, it was a big deal. It was, it was, they basically had like a parade when she yeah. came Yeah. <laughs> like it was a big deal. So in 1936 to 1939, Debbie claimed that her life before when she died felt she felt dizzy and enveloped in a profound darkness before she saw a yellow light she then saw the hindu god krishna um now like i said lugdi was very religious mm-hmm. so i'm assuming that's why shanti i think that was like the temple that she went to too. yes like, yes so that's why shanti like, yeah. is now seeing all of this years later a 1958 news reporter inter- interviewed and followed up with her at the time debbie was 32 years old and had never married so she was one of those people that actually went her entire life knowing, knowing yeah. yeah that she was yeah, reincarnated she still loved her and husband, she loved so she didn't yes marry. Yeah. yeah she felt like she was already married yeah, yeah. so at that point I yeah i understand that so she lived out her life quiet and, and spiritual and she also planned to form an organization which was quote unquote devoted to the idea of living our lives according to the dictates of the inner voice. Debbie passed away in 1987 at the age of 61. This story I remember hearing, but like I said before, I I don't know where I heard it from and I just couldn't believe it. I truly believe in reincarnation. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's, it's a it's a story that makes people believe. Like yeah. it's pretty crazy. I did hear something else that, um, in a different source, I listened to a podcast, obviously, and um, they said that apparently her husband ha- was having like a little like affair, like he was stepping out of the relationship, and oh. this little girl was literally like, I know about that other woman, and he like apparently like got on his hands and knees and cried, and like that's when he really realized that she was that's his wife. His yeah, really I, wife. Yeah, the source, okay, so the source that Justin actually used to the... Uh, the Carol Bowman, she stated in her... This is where they actually got the article from. Yeah. Carol Bowman. Um, she, quote-unquote, I guess said, um, when Shanti had the premiered meals together mm-hmm. for him, he actually brought his former wife to the table. And he um, he was so astounded by it that Shanti even was like, well, how dare, like, basically... You bring this female, other well, this other female, when you said to me that you would never marry again. Wow. Oh yeah, I do remember that. So okay. yeah, it's you promised to me. And yes. Now look at you, you're yep. married again. You couldn't even. So make she it. did say that too when they She's were eating. She's a baddie. She's yes. this young girl <laughs> reincarnated. Up. Snap, snap. That's so cool. Yeah, it was. It's definitely worth. Like, that it's is definitely a, good a story. story to yeah. read. Oh yeah. That was an awesome story. So I'm just gonna warn you that this next story. Gets really confusing. Just for the simple fact that the names are all like J sounding. Okay, you should be used to that. Jordan, Justin. I Jeff, am, but like... other people aren't. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't wait to hear it. What was your next story? Okay, so my next story is the Pollock sisters. So the story goes that John and Florence Pollock were a religious Catholic couple who married in the 1940s. They had two sons, and in 1946, um, she gave birth to Joanna, and in 1950, she gave birth to another daughter named Jacqueline. Both parents worked a lot, so the kids were raised fully by their grandmother, the maternal grandmother. 
The girls quickly became inseparable, and Joanna took on this, like, motherly role, she was a couple years older anyway, to her younger sister. She also liked to dress up in costumes and act out plays for Jacqueline and the kids, like, around their house. Yeah, super cute. They both really enjoyed combing people's hair, especially their fathers. I think that that is so cute for some reason. <laughs> I don't know why. But the, like these things are going to come up later, so that's why I'm adding them in right off the bat. When Jacqueline was three years old, she fell into a bucket and got a scar on her forehead by her right eye. She also had a birthmark on her left hip. Like They kind of describe it just like on her left like airy, like mm-hmm. stomach area, but some sources say hip. Jacqueline also struggled to write, holding a pencil in a specific way in her fist instead of in between her fingers. Um, Jacqueline was described as being more stocky than her, her older sister, Joanna, who was taller and lanky. Um, like I said, this, this information is going to be super important later. Mm-hmm. Um, weirdly, one day, Joanna, the older sister, said to her parents that she would, quote-unquote, never be a lady. As if she knew that she was never going to be able to grow up and make it to adulthood. Oh, that's weird. Oh, that's they tried sad. to brush this off, you know, as kids will be kids, like we say in every yeah. story. Um, that was until May of 1957. While Joanna and Jacqueline were walking to church with a friend, they were tragically hit by a car. Oh, my oh, God, no. no. Yeah, the woman behind the wheel was super depressed um, after being forcibly separated from her children. So she decided to try to commit suicide. Obviously, she didn't, but mm-hmm. she took a... Um, lethal quantity of aspirin and phenobarbituones, barbiturates, I think, um, mm-hmm. and got into the car, which was really freaking stupid, with the intention of colliding into something full speed, but really she slammed into a wall, running over the kids in the process. Oh, I know. Yeah, that's terrible. Yeah, so the three children, 11-year-old Joanna Pollock and her 6-year-old sister, Jacqueline Pollock, and her friend had all died. Wow. The sisters died at the scene. The friend died on the way to the hospital. The woman was obviously taken to a psychiatric facility where she remained because obviously she was super depressed and not her mental health was shit. Um, And the ordeal left the parents obviously completely devastated. Well, this story is starting off extremely tragic. I know. I was like like right off the bat. So I actually found this story. It came up a couple times because I was interested in learning about reincarnation and birthmarks mm-hmm. because I remember growing up why are you Edward. Oh, <laughs> I was like why are you laughing at me I have a big ass birthmark on my stomach and she calls it Edward it has a name <laughs> it's always grown up with me anyway um and I remember my mom watching like a show and being like oh yeah they talk about like if you have like big birthmarks usually that's like how you died in your past life so I was super fascinated and this one story was what came up so I found it crazy that you know, as we go through this story, they're going to talk about that birthmark. Yeah. And it's, like, I'll talk about it at the time, but it, like, kind of boggles your mind, and we'll get into it. But anyway, continuing on. One year after the tragedy, John and Florence found out that they were going to have another baby, which is awesome for them. They were told that they were only going to be having one baby, even though John somehow swore his wife was pregnant with twins. Mm -hmm. Um, On October 4th, 1958, Florence gave birth to two daughters, identical twins. Oh, well, oh, of course, no. the story's perfect for you. Because yeah. you're, you're a twin. <laughs> the twin girls were named Jillian and Jennifer. After they were born, they moved to a completely different town to start fresh. Obviously, they probably didn't want to see the scene right. of the accident, and they were exactly. happy to have two new daughters. They quickly realized odd similarities between their twins and their deceased daughters. 
Quickly, they realize odd similarities between the twins and their deceased daughters. For starters, Jennifer had two birthmarks. One was round, dark mark on the left side of her waist, which is like her hip, like I said, Uh identical to the birthmark that little Jacqueline had. The other was a light mark on her forehead over the right eye. This one was identical to the scar Jacqueline got when she accidentally fell over and hit her head on the bucket. When Jillian and Jennifer were only three years old, they were presented with old toys from Joanna and Jacqueline that were in a box in the attic. So, like, these kids never saw the toys. Yeah. They just brought them down and was like, hey, we have these. Do you want them? But oddly, the girls didn't fight over them. Like, I know that if my parents gave me a toy and Taylor wanted the toy that I wanted, I'd be like, no, Right, if there was just a box of toys and you said, go get get toys, and you'd you'd probably fight over something. Exactly, but in this situation, they didn't fight over them. Instead, right away, Jillian claimed Joanna's toys as her own, and Jennifer claimed Jacqueline's. That's weird. Oh, that's so weird. Super creepy. Like, if I was the parents, I'd be like, "Mm." And this is interesting (laughs) because all these other stories have been... A reincarnation into a different family, into a different time right. period. Mm-hmm. And now we have like the same. these girls going into the bodies of their sisters. Yeah, and I was hoping that you would bring that up because there were sources that said that the husband, John, was apparently super fascinated with the idea of reincarnation. But because they were deeply religious, obviously they couldn't really right. talk about it. They couldn't get like, you know, feedback about it. So he basically was like, God, give me a sign of reincarnation. Wow. So like he, that's why he that's had why he, the inkling that he was going to have twins. twins like right. he knew hmm. once his two daughters died that he like was going to get them back. So going forward, Jillian took on all the same interests as her dead sister, Joanna. Um, acting more mature and responsible than Jennifer, and Jennifer accepted Jillian's motherly attitude towards her without question, even though the twins were the same age. Also, she enjoyed dressing up and acting out the plays, just like her deceased sibling. Um, By the time Jillian and Jennifer were born, Florence was free to um, help out and be the caregiver that she wasn't to her deceased kids, yet the twins kept turning to their grandmother for love and guidance. Just like the deceased. yeah. Yeah. Both twins also enjoyed brushing people's hair, especially their fathers, just like their dead siblings, which I thought was pretty crazy. When Jillian and Jennifer started learning to write, Jillian held a pencil correctly right away, didn't have a problem with it. But Jennifer struggled until she was like around the age of seven and still, even as a young adult, started reverting back to holding the pen upright in her fist very often, just like Jacqueline. That's crazy. Jillian also had a slender build contrasting to Jennifer's stocky frame in the same way, even though they were identical twins. Like, I know it's just like, just because we're identical doesn't mean that we're not going to grow up and be different looking. Right. You know what I mean? Like, you don't look identical forever. (laughs) So anyway, three or four years later, the Pollocks returned back to where they used to live um, for the first time. So they had to go, you know, they wanted to go Mm -hmm. see, have them explain go around the area where their siblings died. Jillian and Jennifer were familiar with the area, oddly, and wanted to cross the road and go to the park where the swings were, clearly knowing their way around. When Joanna and Jacqueline were still alive, their mother wore a specific smock to help her husband with the milk delivery business. Jacqueline was still little and at home at the time while Joanna was at school. When the two girls died, Florence stopped helping with the business and the smock was stored away. Obviously, we said that the mother was more active in the twins' life than the deceased girls. When Jillian and Jennifer were almost five, their father put the smock on to do some painting. Jennifer saw him and asked, why are you wearing mommy's coat? John asked her how she knew that it was her mother's coat. And Jennifer replied that her mom had worn it while delivering milk. 
wow. That's <laughs> yeah. insane. She didn't Super do crazy. that when the twins were alive. Yeah. Exactly. So Jennifer also became extremely annoyed with Jillian, who couldn't recognize this smock, but it was because she didn't remember it since she was at school in her previous life. Right. So it made sense to the parents why she didn't remember, but it yeah. didn't make sense to Jennifer. According to sources, Jillian pointed to Jennifer's forehead and birthmark and said, that's the mark that Jennifer got when she fell on the bucket. Jeez, how oh my she know Exactly. Also, the girls were really scared of cars. I mean, some oh. skeptics, like, you know, theorize this away because it, the parents were probably scared of the cars because they lost their kids due to an accident. I mean, I'm sure right. they were like, So maybe you know. that could have affected how they were scared. But anyway, they were very skittish when it came to crossing streets, and one time they heard a car engine in, like, in a closed alleyway, so it was probably super loud, and they recoiled in horror, clung to each other, and screamed, the car, the car, it's coming for us. Wow. So, that's kind of spooky. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, that kind of freaks me out a little bit. Un- well, obviously, the next part freaks me out, too. Not long after, Florence saw Jillian cradling Jennifer's head and said, quote-unquote, the blood's coming out of your eyes. That's where the car hit you. <gasps> no way. Eerily, the father reported that when he identified the bodies of Joanna and Jacqueline, Jacqueline's head was bandaged above the eyes and they were bleeding. Wow. Oh, my God. Jillian and Jennifer's past life memories stopped after the age of seven. And as adults, they seemed to accept that they were Joanna and Jacqueline reincarnated, even though they couldn't remember any of the stories um, and the coincidences from their early days. But funny, they had mild skepticism towards the notion of reincarnation, even though they're products <laughs> oh, of reincarnation. Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, um, but then something happened in 1981. Jillian had visions to which she saw herself playing in a sand pit in Wickham, a town the family lived in when Joanna was around three years old, which was p- before the other sister right. was born. Jillian described um, perfectly the lawn, the house, the gardens, but in this life she'd never step foot in Wickham. That's crazy. That's, yeah. Absolutely insane. Yeah. Wow. Their story is pretty, pretty cool. That was that was a good one. And I know that it gets confusing because you're talking about, like, the siblings, and then you're talking about the twins and everything like that. So I had to, like, reread this story 50 <laughs> times to make sure I had their names right. But, yeah, so I was like, I have to bring that in. But coming back to what I brought up earlier, in all of the podcasts and all of the research that I did... They kept bringing up the birthmarks, saying, like, even though they're genetically identical, they had different birthmarks. Taylor and I are genetically the same. Yeah. We share 99.9% of the same DNA. Yeah, we got we... our DNA done, and I have birthmarks that she does not have. Exactly. Yeah. Like, I got a gnarly ass one on my stomach. She does not have that. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's just, like, I don't, I don't think that birthmarks are, like, hereditary. Like, I don't think it's genetics that gives you birthmarks. I think it's just... How I know that there's like weird spiritual ways that people say like, depending on how you are in your mom's stomach, you get these, you know, you bump on her belly and you get like a birthmark and all those weird things. But I think it's just how you're created. I don't yeah. think it has anything I to do with. I have looked for a birthmark on myself and I can't find one. Yeah, there people go their whole lives without them. People go, they don't have them, and then one day they will have them. You know, it's, it's just how it is. It's a different yeah. type of pigment. It's, you know, apparently like if you get those red ones, it's build up of blood vessels while you're being created huh. you know but yeah i just thought that that was pretty interesting that yeah that's really good maybe i got stabbed in the stomach in my past life oh, and that's like no. a big or shot in the stomach at a speakeasy well i mean it is because you love oh, the 1920s yeah, that's right you like the gatsby era well they gotta kill me i'm just trying to get drunk <laughs> <laughs> the last reincarnation story we have uh the one i did is about cameron mccallay cameron spent his entire life in glasgow scotland 
However, when he was only two years old, he started telling his family about his previous life on the island of Berra. Berra is situated off the west coast of Scotland, about 200 miles away. He lived with his mother, Norma, and talked about a white house that overlooked the sea and beach. He explained how there were airplanes that used to land on the beach and how he had a black and white dog that he loved while he was there. Cameron's father on the island was called Shane Robertson, who apparently died after being knocked over by a car, according to Cameron. When asked about this car accident, Cameron just said he didn't look both ways. Cameron kept complaining about the toilets on Barra, saying that his parents had three toilets. He also drew a picture of his house, a long white building, standing on the beach. Cameron talked about his parents, brothers, and sisters, and became increasingly upset about leaving his other mother. He would cry continuously and say that he wished his mother could see that he was all right. Cameron's story soon came to the attention of a film company, and after listening to a story, his nursery school teacher suggested that they should film him and go to the island. The film company agreed to take him to Barra, and they were escorted by Dr. Jim Tucker, a child psychologist. Cameron couldn't stop jumping up and down when he was told that he was going to go home. When they arrived on the island, they landed on a beach, and Cameron ran around yelling, I'm back. Such oh, a common same. theme. And this little boy also kept like saying, like, I want to go home. I, yeah. I'm not home. I want to go home. And his parents were like so confused. Like, you are home. But he's saying he wasn't home. And he's describing his other life in detail, the house, the beach, yeah. about a place this family has never been that's 200 miles away. Cameron talked about his bear mother, saying that she had long brown hair that fell all the way down her back, and she read him stories from the Bible. Cameron's mother stated that they were not religious, and they have never done this at home. They searched for clues to Cameron's past and contacted the Heritage Center to find out about this house. Unfortunately, they were unable to find records about any house owned by Robertson family overlooking the bay. They even drove around the island looking for the house, but couldn't see that any resembled Cameron's description. Eventually, they realized they were looking in the wrong direction, as the planes Cameron saw would be coming from the wrong side of the bay. After a while, they were informed that there was a Robertson family home on the other side of the island, and they drove Cameron there. When they arrived, Cameron recognized the exact gate and ran straight to the house. However, as he walked through the door, he started to get pale and quiet. Up until then, he had been excited, but upon entering the house, he became uncertain. Why? Cameron recognized all the rooms where he had lived and showed them all the nooks and crannies. And the weird thing, remember about the three toilets? He showed them that about the three toilets. When they went into the garden, he even took them to a secret entrance that he had been talking about for years. However, the strangest part of the story came when researchers found one of the surviving Robertson family members. Unfortunately, the relative in question knew nothing about a man called Shane Robertson. Even stranger was the fact that his family had photos of the dog and the car that Cameron had seen in his visions. Oh, the black and white dog. Yeah. As Cameron grew older, he began to lose memories of Barra. However, he settled down after his visit and was happy to know that his mother in his life believed his story. One of the last things that Cameron mentioned was when he was uh, talking to his friend saying, don't worry about dying, you just come back again. Aww. When his mother asked him, how did you get here to me? He replied, I fell and went into your tummy. Aww, I love that. Oh wait, that. that actually yeah. is so cute. I know, that's, that's not really even cute. creepy, that's just that's cute. cute. Yeah. Oh, I love Aww. that. But it's crazy how this little boy is recognizing this exact house, this exact spot, even the planes going in the same direction. Remember, they went to the wrong side of the island. Yeah. yeah. You see the family photos, you recognize people, you see the dog. Like, 
It's yeah. crazy. It's... It is weird that this, I mean, who knows how long ago Father Shane that he knew about was. Maybe this relative was too old or maybe she was uh, too young at the time. Who knows? Right. Um, but yeah, those were our reincarnation stories. Pretty yeah, wild. That's, yeah, they were pretty good stories. Yeah. But now I'm excited for the segment of the podcast for the spooky fan story. Spooky fan story! Dun, 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 dun. I feel like we need a little, like... We do. I gotta make a Jeopardy. <laughs> yeah. So this listener requested to be completely anonymous. They wrote, 100% ghost me. So, here we go. <laughs> I actually know who sent this in, so I just want to say thank you for sending in your very cool story. It is a really, really cool story. So the story goes, when I was 12 years old, I was visiting my friend in Chanhassen. Don't know if we're saying that right. Minnesota. His neighbor, who was an eight-year-old girl, was out for a jog one weekend. She unfortunately was hit by a car on a highway as she was crossing the street and sadly passed. I woke up one morning at my friend's house after we had a sleepover hearing my friend's dad reading the newspaper. He told us about the eight-year-old girl and it was heartbreaking news. Later that night, my friend and I were preparing for our upcoming hockey tryouts and we were running laps around the neighborhood at 3 a.m., getting our cardio and conditioning up. After several laps, we both agreed to take one last lap around the neighborhood. As we passed my friend's house, we began to approach a trail that everyone in the community would run on. Out of thin air, a silhouette of a girl appeared about 20 feet in front of my friend and I. We stopped right in our tracks and both could see her. She was see-through, wearing a headband, had earphones in, and was simply the ghost of the girl who was out for a run. I just got the chills. I know, that's super creepy. I'd be freaking I'd be the fuck out. <laughs> my friend and I looked at each other to confirm what we were seeing. My friend looked panicked and started walking backwards. I yelled, hey, who are you? In a demanding yet curious <laughs> tone. What a badass. <laughs> yeah. like, hey, who are you? And began to walk toward it. After walking several steps, I began to have a slight jog in my step as my curiosity exponentially grew. As soon as I did this, the figure vanished as if a cloud of smoke disintegrated in thin air. I realized she was gone, so I turned around and my friend and I went back home in total shock at what we just had witnessed. Well, yeah. She seemed as if she knew nothing. There is a quote in the Bible that describes how the dead know nothing and only the living are aware of the fact that they are living. She looked as if she had no clue that she was dead and was just going about her run like she like she would have normally here on Earth. Keep up the great work. Love your content. Oh, thanks for that. But yeah, that just seems like a um, residual, residual yeah. kind of haunting spirit just doing what she always did, doing what she did on the last day of her unfortunate life. I mean, it's nice that they weren't running by the highway and saw, get, like, saw the ghost get hit, you right. know? Yes, and then yeah. been like, oh my god. You know, like at least like they just yeah. saw her gear. That's up cool to go. that like he sees a see-through apparition. He runs. He actually ran toward yeah. her. And like she I just said, badass. Evaporated. Yeah, that's crazy. Me, I'd be like, Mm-mm, Paige. Justin, I would be the I would be the friend <laughs> backing up and being like, no. <laughs> I'd be like standing there. I'd be like, y'all see that? This is why I don't go on runs. Nope. That's spooky. That was a good yeah. story. That was, that was a, a good, good story. story. Thank you again for sending in a story and thanks for being a fan. And anyone else who has spooky fan stories, if you ever had a ghost encounter, any kind of spooky experience, anything at all, please send in your stories to ghostencounterstories at gmail.com or you can message us on social. I'm still waiting for a cryptid story. I want yeah. a like werewolf story. I want someone to have seen who has seen Bigfoot or something. Yeah, you know? I want something cool. Like, yeah. Crazy. So again, I'm still waiting for aliens. Send in your stories. We need some stories, and I want to hear what you guys and I want to hear what you people have witnessed and experienced. I think that'd be really cool. 
And don't forget to give us five stars wherever you're listening. And please share the podcast around. Um, we're getting a lot more comments and people are hearing about us. So please share around. It's really cool. We had some nice words. I was just uh, going to say that. We had some cool <laughs> little Facebook posts and yep. stuff recently. So I love hearing from everybody. Yeah. Uh, Brian, thanks for the nice words on Facebook. That was, that was awesome. Super stellar. Yeah. Before we go, I just want to make a side note um, that I am involved in a nonprofit called Mimi's House. Uh, if you go to mimishouse.org, you will see that it is a uh, nonprofit organization that provides help and care for families and caregivers of people who are dealing with ovarian cancer. Please donate whatever you can. There is a donate option on there, mimishouse.org. And I just want to say, Megan, we love you. Love you yeah, very we lo- much. Love you, Meg. And Paige, thank you so much again for coming on the podcast episode. It's great having two of my best friends on the podcast uh, who are sisters. And this was a really cool episode, especially since we had stories. Yeah, Yeah. thanks for having having me, Justin. It was really fun. We'll have you on again, definitely. Um, But that is all the time we have for today. Stay spooky. Maybe it's not deja vu. And make sure you look both ways before crossing the street. Uh